Hey, welcome back to Books with Bert. I'm Bert Folsom, and I'm continuing today with my book, New Deal or Raw Deal. The question today, the topic, did FDR buy the 1936 election? But before we get into today's episode, I want to remind you that if you like my podcast and you want to learn more wonderful and forgotten stories in American history, don't forget to rate and review my podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get podcasts. It really helps. And don't forget to share with your friends and family, too. When I partnered with Young America's Foundation to do podcasts on American history, I never imagined just how far this would reach. I'm very grateful to you. And let's get going on today's episode. Did President Roosevelt buy the 1936 election? That's quite an insinuation. I do not mean by that question to suggest that Democrats and FDR handed out $10 bills to voters as they went to the polls in order that they would vote Democrat. I mean by this an indirect purchase of votes through government subsidies targeted at special interest groups. If the question is asked, did FDR through targeted subsidies to specific groups of voters, buy or purchase the 1936 election? I think the answer is yes. Now, in American history, we've always had some government subsidies, some government programs that benefited certain groups of voters. Occasional tariffs, for example, enacted by Congress, have persuaded voters to support a certain candidate in a presidential election. The founders, however, were very nervous about any kind of program that would be targeted to voter groups. They knew human nature. They knew that if government was empowered to give taxpayer dollars to certain groups, that the politics of America would be permanently damaged. That's why in Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution, government is limited on what it can do. For example, there's no provision for government support for education, for support to the unemployed or those on welfare, no support for farming programs. However, FDR began to make breakthroughs in these areas during his first term from 1932 to 36. The National Recovery Act and the Agricultural Adjustment Act, which were attempts to subsidize and help various groups of voters, those programs were declared unconstitutional by the Supreme Court. So some of Roosevelt's efforts were stopped. However, the WPA and the Emergency Relief Act both were still constitutional in 1936, And those programs allowed Roosevelt to get out massive amounts of tax dollars to various voting groups in American society. The 1936 presidential election would, in fact, be the first election in which we have massive federal subsidies given to various voter groups. The question then is, what was the result? The first point to make is that Franklin Roosevelt, although he had the power of the federal government behind him, had programs that didn't work that were a liability on his record. We had, for example, going into the 1936 election, unemployment of between about 14 to 16 percent. 
the highest in American history of any candidate seeking re-election, except for Herbert Hoover. And we know how Roosevelt defeated Hoover in the previous presidential election. That high unemployment rate had largely persisted, and now Roosevelt would face it running for re-election. As late as July of 1936, in other words, the summer of 1936, before the November election, two Gallup polls showed Governor Alf Landon of Kansas, who was the Republican candidate, beating Roosevelt in the Electoral College, and that margin of victory for Landon was increasing as the month of July went on. Even more startling to Roosevelt, was a Gallup poll in August that asked the question, do you believe the acts and policies of the Roosevelt administration may lead to dictatorship? That such a question would ever be asked of any American president was remarkable. But that 45% of Americans said yes is even more astonishing. High prices, record high taxes, persistent unemployment, and the centralizing of power were taking a toll on Roosevelt's presidency. The statistics on relief or welfare would be especially troublesome to Roosevelt. Much of the success of his presidency would be tied to the promised decline in welfare cases. After all, if any recovery was occurring, the numbers of Americans on relief should decline. But that is not what was happening. Roosevelt's friends were nervous because of the implications of high unemployment and limited recovery. Secretary of Treasury Henry Morgenthau confided in his diary, quote, If we keep on spending money at the rate we are, and in such helter-skelter, hit-and-miss method, we cannot help but be riding for a fall. It seems to me we are not making any headway, and the number of unemployed is staying more or less static. End quote. Yet in March 1936, the New York Times confirmed Morgan Thaw's fears. It announced that Americans on relief had increased every year since Roosevelt took office, from 3.5 million in 1933 to almost 5 million at the end of 1935. When the Roosevelt administration avoided discussing these statistics on relief, many reporters were very annoyed. Frank Kent of the Baltimore Sun said, quote, the more money the administration has spent on relief and public works, the more men there are on the relief rolls and fewer are the jobs. No contradiction of these facts is even attempted. The way the administration meets them is by ignoring them, end quote. But Roosevelt was not ignoring them. He was shrewdly using them to jumpstart his reelection campaign. In 1935, Congress had allocated almost $5 billion for the newly created WPA to use for relief work, and much of that cash the president had personal discretion in distributing. What that meant was, and we've talked about this in previous podcasts, was that state governors had to come hat in hand to Washington, hoping to persuade the president to build roads, dams, bridges, and model cities in their states. These governors, quote, 
want to keep on the good side of Santa Claus, Raymond Clapper, a columnist, noted. This does not seem to be good government as it has been known. But it is right now the lasso which enables Mr. Roosevelt to hold the country in hand, end quote. During 1936, the New Dealers launched many federal projects and promised many others. President Roosevelt hired a man named Emil Hurya to track the funds and do polls to find out how well the funds were influencing the voters. Hurya said, quote, Time, money, and effort should not be wasted, but applied only in those states close to the 50% line and carrying the largest possible electoral vote at the least expense. Historian Melvin Holly, who has studied Hurria's career at length, described Hurria's campaign strategy this way, quote, With notepad in hand, Hurria would tell the Democratic High Command, we have this state for sure. Waste no more effort on it. We are certain to lose this state. Ignore it. And then he would say, now here is a doubtful state that may be won or lost. With Hurry's advice, Postmaster General James Farley, who directed the flow of funds for the Democrats, would signal the announcement of new WPA projects and relief programs or designate speakers and campaign materials for those states that Hurya's notebook indicated were doubtful. Farley and Hurya even used WPA administrators and job holders as campaign workers in the 1936 campaign and in other elections. They went into key states to do polls, distribute questionnaires, and solicit report for Roosevelt. Keep in mind, these are taxpayer-supported workers who are now doing polling and campaigning for the president. Sometimes those working in the WPA or other programs had to kick back part of their salaries to support Roosevelt or other Democratic candidates. Pennsylvania was always a swing state, and one county chairman in Pennsylvania sent out letters telling those people on the WPA, quote, I must now advise you that unless your contribution is received promptly, it will be necessary to place your name on the list of those who will not be given consideration for any other appointment after the termination of the emergency relief work, end quote. In other states, the connection between the WPA and the Democrats was more subtle, but still very real. In South Dakota, a Democrat county chairman sent this note to the director of the WPA. Quote, Place this man on the WPA on the special setup you have that takes care of rush men such as welfare will not certify. I have looked into this affair and he has nine votes in his family. End quote. In the four months before the 1936 election, 300,000 men were added to the WPA. In the month after the election, 300,000 were promptly removed from the WPA. As Thomas Dewey, later the governor of New York, observed, quote, 300,000 men and their families moved on and off relief as pawns of New Deal politics. Some members of Roosevelt's cabinet were also nervous about moving poor Americans on and off the WPA for political purposes. 
when, after the election, Harry Hopkins, who is in charge of the relief projects, told Secretary of Treasury Morgenthau that he was ready to lay off hundreds of thousands of WPA workers, including 150,000 from the cities, Morgenthau shot back, if you can find 150,000 people now on relief rolls who you say now are not in need of relief, how are you going to answer the charge that you must have known before the November election that these people were not in need of relief? Roosevelt's attitude seemed to be, win the election now and answer questions about how he won it later. When, for example, Roosevelt heard that thousands of WPA workers were to be laid off on October 1st, the month before the election, he told Morgenthau, quote, I don't give a goddamn where he gets the money from, but not one person is to be laid off on the 1st of October. In part as a result, work relief expenditures increased sharply from the fall of 1935 to the fall of 1936, a 268% increase according to a Treasury Department memorandum. The biggest increase was in Pennsylvania, a swing state that Hoover had carried in 1932 and that Roosevelt had targeted for 1936. For the farmers, Morgenthau described a plan to make sure soil conservation service checks arrived in farm households before the election. Four farm states were in the balance, Morgenthau believed. Earlier in February, Roosevelt dealt directly with Henry Wallace, his Secretary of Agriculture. Roosevelt demanded, Henry, through July, August, September, October, and up to the 5th of November, I want cotton to sell at 12 cents a pound. I do not care how you do it. That is your problem. It can't go below 12 cents. Wallace always tended to obey Roosevelt's wishes, and his loyalty would later win him the vice presidency in the 1940 election. On the use of subsidies for votes, however, Wallace was embarrassed. Yet he rationalized, quote, Politicians of whatever party seem unable to rise above the temptation of using government expenditures as reasons for persuading voters. Naturally, Roosevelt's use of federal programs to woo voters irritated the Republican nominee, Alf Landon. He said, and I quote, If Roosevelt did not have $5 billion of WPA money, his election would be very much in doubt, end quote. As the campaign wore on, and with New Deal money spigots turned on high, Landon began to fall behind more and more. Now, Landon won a majority of donations from businessmen, and he could use that in the campaign. But that cash was dwarfed by Roosevelt's federal money machine. Roosevelt's patronage trumped Landon's protests of high prices, high taxes, failed programs, and executive usurpation of power. The spirit of this campaign was captured by Senator Hiram Johnson, a California Republican who actually was endorsing Roosevelt for re-election. By September 22nd, Senator Johnson predicted a clear Roosevelt victory. He added this, and I quote, 
Any man who could not be elected who goes on a train through the Middle West, takes out his checkbook and says, I will allot a few million dollars to this particular place and a few million dollars to some other, and who carries with him the agricultural department with checks for farmers in untold amounts, and Mr. Hopkins, who doles out relief in huge quantities, should retire from politics. He starts with probably 8 million votes bought. The other side has to buy them one by one, and they cannot hope to match his money. Let me repeat that last part. Roosevelt starts with probably 8 million votes bought. The other side has to buy them one by one, and they cannot hope to match his money. Even black Americans who had been loyal Republicans since the Civil War era began to be enticed by federal money. In 1932, Roosevelt lost the black vote by a three-to-one margin. Then came the Emergency Relief, the WPA, the Civilian Conservation Corps, and especially the Public Works Administration, which targeted large building projects in black communities throughout America. Harold Ickes, who headed the PWA, created the directorship of Negro Economics and hired many blacks, such as Dr. Robert C. Weaver. In 1966, Weaver became the first black cabinet head in U.S. history. But in 1936, he was a 29-year-old special assistant who helped Ickes secure quotas for blacks on many PWA projects. During Roosevelt's first term, $13 million of PWA money went to black causes, especially schools and hospitals. On October 26, 1936, eight days before the election, Ickes gave a national radio speech from the campus of Howard University, a premier black school, dedicating a chemistry building that was constructed with $625,000 from the PWA. Icky said in his speech, Not only has the Public Works Administration made grants to Howard University, it has also sought to increase the educational equipment available to Negroes in all sections of the nation, from elementary schools to colleges, end quote. He then told his radio audience of $3 million plus dollars more in PWA funds that had gone to, quote, hospitals for Negroes and construction of low-rent housing projects for blacks. Would Ickes' national advertisement of PWA spending help dislodge blacks from their Republican allegiance? On Election Day, Weaver received a telegram from Los Angeles that read, Quote, tremendous swing for Roosevelt of Negro vote in California since the secretary's broadcast at Howard University, end quote. Blacks elsewhere responded to Roosevelt's willingness to include them in some but not all of his New Deal programs. Naturally, the Republicans objected to such naked appeals for votes, especially through relief programs. The New Dealers, Alf Landon charged, were, quote, using relief rolls as modern reservations on which the great colored race is to be confined forever as a ward of the federal government, end quote. Landon said this, but he had a dilemma, and it has been a Republican dilemma ever since 1936. So many Americans were now working in federal programs that he risked 
offending about 10 million voters if he argued for cutting programs to balance the budget. But if he agreed to continue the programs, then the balanced budget crowd would be unhappy, and the people on the programs, although no longer angry, would still have no real incentive to ditch the man who created so many of the federal jobs. As one reporter quipped, don't switch Santa Clauses in midstream. Roosevelt accurately attacked Landon in Syracuse, New York, in the following way. You cannot promise to repeal taxes before one audience and promise to spend more of the taxpayer's money before another audience. You simply cannot make good on both promises at the same time. On Election Day, Roosevelt seemingly crushed Landon by the largest margin in any two-party race in American history. In the Electoral College, the vote was 523 for Roosevelt, 8 for Landon. The popular vote was over 60% for Franklin Roosevelt. Such a lopsided margin, many argued, made FDR perhaps the most popular president in U.S. history. However, if we look at the subsidies and how the subsidies created votes for Roosevelt, we can see more clearly how this happened. David Lawrence, who is the editor of the U.S. News and World Report and was a prominent columnist in the 1930s, did a study on where the money went and how those people who received the money voted. What he found was that in the AAA counties receiving money for farming, Roosevelt won by a landslide. But in those counties that received no AAA funds, Landon carried the vote. In counties that were receiving money for relief, those that received high money for relief voted overwhelmingly for Roosevelt, more so than those who received less money for relief. In the swing state of Pennsylvania, for example, the 19 counties in Pennsylvania that received the most federal money for relief voted for Roosevelt by a 62 to 38 margin over Landon. However, in the 25 counties in Pennsylvania that had the lowest level of relief, Landon defeated Roosevelt 55% to 45%. In one of the two states that Landon carried, he carried Maine and Vermont. In Vermont, the three highest counties in the state of Vermont that received relief money went for Roosevelt. In the other 11 counties in Vermont that received much less money for relief, Landon carried those counties. Let's look at the 1936 election and look at it as if no money was available for Roosevelt to pump into counties to support his re-election bid. In those counties where no money was spent by the federal government, Landon carried those counties. So that if we had had a traditional presidential election where the federal government had very limited power to spend money, the implication is that Landon would have won the election. And if we look at it this way, no other president other than Roosevelt had ever won an election with so high a rate of unemployment as Roosevelt had when he ran in 1936. That suggests that the normal sway of a poor economy 
would have helped Landon win the election, but that did not happen because Roosevelt had massive federal funding. He used the funding wisely, he targeted the votes, and he won the election. Here is my conclusion. Yes, Franklin Roosevelt indirectly bought the 1936 election. That's the first time that had ever happened in American history. And it changed American politics forever. It put the Republicans on the defense. What would they do when the Democrats said, we are spending money to help people? The Democrats had a campaign machine that was so impressive. Let me give you an example. In the state of Maine, the Democrats started this in 1934 by campaigning with their candidates and telling voters how much money their candidates were bringing in to their state. In Maine, the governor was a man named Louis Brand. In the Portland Press-Herald, the leading newspaper in the state, the day before the election, Governor Brand had a large ad with his picture that said, quote, The knowledge and force of Governor Brand secured from the federal government $108 million for Maine, providing employment for 44,000 people. In case the voters missed the implication of these facts, Brand emphasized on the campaign trail, and I quote, the Roosevelt policies are such that a state must have friendly contact with Washington to properly serve the interests of its people, end quote. The Republicans simply were overwhelmed with all of this force of the money that was being brought into the state by elected Democrats. They were on the defensive, and they've never really had a good response to this since 1936. The best effort since 1936 came in 1980 and 1984 when President Reagan had the advantage of running against President Jimmy Carter, who again had many federal policies. They failed, as those policies invariably do when we have these kinds of federal funding projects. And the high unemployment allowed Reagan to ask the voters, are you better off now than you were four years ago? Well, they weren't in 1980, and so that helped Reagan win the 1980 election. He instituted tax cuts, had limited government, and then carried 49 out of 50 states in 1984. That has been the best Republican effort since 1936. I have two books I'd like to recommend. The first is James Farley's book called Jim Farley's Story. Farley was Roosevelt's postmaster general, and he tells the story of how he directed federal funds. I mentioned historian Melvin Holly. He has a book called The Wizard of Washington, and it's a biography of Emil Hurria, and I recommend that book highly. Let me put in a third book as well, and that is newspaper man Frank Kent's book. It's called Without Greece. Political Behavior, 1934 to 1936. Kent is very good at describing how Roosevelt used relief and welfare and subsidies to groups that were very poor to secure votes. And that concludes today's episode of Books with Bert. Thank you all for listening. Be sure to subscribe and rate my podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or any other place where you get podcasts so you don't miss future episodes. And if you liked today's episode and you want to find more content to fill your heart with love for America and conservative ideas, be sure to check out YAF.org. The conservative movement starts here. Until next time, keep reading.